0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, good morning church. How are you all doing? Good. Glad to be with you here this morning on Palm Sunday. If you want to open up your Bibles to John chapter 12, that's where we're going to take our text from today. This year for Easter, we've decided uh, on looking at the history of the resurrection, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, from the Gospel of John. And unfortunately for us, John tells us what the purpose of his Gospel account actually was. At the end of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John writes this, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the things that he wrote, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, John has an agenda for the reader. His gospel is not supposed to be an account of every detail of Jesus' life, but the details that he includes in the gospel, he intends uh, that the reader should, through those events, move a little closer towards believing and trusting in Jesus and finding life in his name. So, with that in mind, as we examine our passage today, it's my hope that we're all going to walk away with a, a sort of awe of God, uh, in awe of his plan to redeem. I hope and pray that our reasons for believing in, for trusting Jesus, for for following him and submitting to his authority and his rule will be brought to bear in our time together today. That we'll be find that we will find that life in his name, in his kingdom, under his authority, is actually the best life. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, as we open your word, we recognize that we are in need of hearing it again. There are some in this room who who maybe will be coming to this text for the first time. They're they're just beginning their journey of, of learning about you and what it means to have life in your son's name. And there are others, God, who for many years, year after year on Palm Sunday, have heard the message of Jesus writing in to Jerusalem and and feel like they already know what it's about God would you refresh those hearts and would you awaken our senses to the reality of your presence would you would you open our eyes to the reality of your rule even now in the already not yet so God Have your way in our time. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us ears for your voice and make application to our lives, we pray. In the name and for the glory of Jesus, amen. Well, here's where we're headed today. i want to give you an outline first before we dive into the text so that you kind of have some file folders to be able to put our thoughts in. Uh, The title of our message today is Missing the Messiah, and it breaks down like this. First of all, in, in verses 12 through 13, the Ma- Messiah's meaning, the Messiah's meaning. Second, the Messiah's mount, he's riding a donkey, what, what's going on there? And in, in verse 19, the Messiah's mutiny, the Messiah's mutiny. And verses 20 through 33, the Messiah's message, the Messiah's message. So the Messiah's meaning, the Messiah's mount, the Messiah's mutiny, and the Messiah's message. As we go through the verses today, I want you to be able to have those sort of thought folders to begin categorizing how we'll think about our text today. Let's begin by reading in verse 12 of chapter 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and they asked him sir we we wish to see Jesus and Philip went and told Andrew and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus and Jesus answered them the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified and truly truly I say unto you unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies it remains alone but if it dies it bears much fruit Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life, life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And, and, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. (laughs) I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, "An, an, an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Almost one half of John's gospel is given to the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. Matthew used more than 33% of his gospel to cover the week. Mark, nearly 40%, and Luke, over 25%, to cover seven days out of Jesus' entire life. And this must mean, at some level... The disciples, as they were thinking about writing the account of Jesus' life and and thinking about, like, okay, what are the most important things that people need to know? The last week of Jesus' life stood out as significant to them, something that they would need to focus on, something that people would need to hear and need to understand as a result. It loomed large in their minds. So, having said that, as we pay attention to the details of the text, I want to offer just a, a short disclaimer on why culture and history matter. Now, I'm, I'm going I'm to give you a little bit of history today. And for some of you, you're like, oh, yay, I love history. And some of you are like, I'm going to put my mask up just in case I need to yawn during the middle of this. It's all covered up. Thank you, COVID. I want to make sure that everyone, uh, doesn't see me being bored to tears. But, but culture and history, they matter. I, I once heard this story about this missionary who spent most of her time in, in, in northern Mexico. And in northern Mexico, she had picked up Spanish. She had learned, uh, how to, how to speak the language. And, and then she was invited to, to travel to the southern part of Mexico and, and stay with a family down there for a month. So she makes her way down, she's welcomed into this home, and it had been a long journey, and so she she asked the the lady who uh, owned the house, the wife in this family, uh, donde esta baño, where's the bathroom, right? And so... The lady takes her in and shows her what looks like a typical sort of third world setting. It's a concrete room, just bare walls, and then like a three inch hole in the floor. And so she says, "Thank you very much." And she she goes in to use the restroom. She stays there for a couple of weeks, and and she's hanging out and and exploring her environment. She is 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 messing around out in the backyard, and all of a sudden she comes up upon what she thought was a little shed. When she opens it up, she, she finds that there is an outhouse out in the backyard. She said, well, that's odd that they have an, an indoor bathroom and an outdoor bathroom. That seems strange and kind of excessive. I wonder what the deal is with that. So later on, she asked the lady of the house. She said, hey, um, I, I noticed that you, you, know, you have a baño outside and a, an a baño inside. And and the lady of the house says, no, 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 uh, sanitario outside, baño inside. You see, in the southern part of Mexico, the bathroom is the place where you bathe. And the place where you take care of business is called the sanitario. And so, for the weeks that she'd been a guest in this poor lady's house, she had been using the restroom in the shower, and this wonderful, gracious host was cleaning up after her every day. Uh, culture and history matter. If you don't understand some things, you're going to miss out on some important clues some things that really all of a sudden bring context to what you're learning help you to understand what is happening when we come to the bible it is important to recognize that we're not coming to a a piece of modern american literature the bible comes to us out of a cultural and historical context that often informs the text that we're reading And some of you are going to be thrilled by learning that, and some of you will be bored by that, but just hang with me as we explore this together, and I promise it will pay off. Verses 12 through 13, we see Jesus beginning to come into Jerusalem as we explore the Messiah's meaning. It is Sunday. It's the week before the unjust trial, murder, and resurrection of Jesus. The disciples have been anticipating conflict in Jerusalem. They knew that it was coming. They've been warning Jesus, like, hey, we shouldn't be up in Jerusalem right now. Like, this is not a great time. But Jesus has been pressing the issue. In verse 12, we're told the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. This was the large crowd that came for the greatest of holidays in Jerusalem, Passover. Many of them had come from Galilee. Uh, when, when they came, they, they came with lambs. The Jewish law required that the Passover lamb live with the family for at least three days before the sacrifice. This is a custom that was, that was born in Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 through 6. And when Jesus came and went into Jerusalem, lambs for sacrifice would have surrounded him and everyone else as everybody's bringing their Passover sacrificial lamb to the city. James Boyce points out this in his commentary. He says that Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that one year a census was taken of the number of lambs slain for Passover. And that figure was 256,500 In other words, with numbers this large, lambs must literally be driven up to Jerusalem throughout the entire day. And consequently, whenever Jesus entered the city, he must have done so surrounded by lambs, himself being the greatest of lambs. Now, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that Jesus made arrangements to come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. As he enters the city, from the east, people begin to recognize Jesus. His his fame has spread throughout. There's this buzz that is around Jesus right now. And, And many had heard of his teaching and his miracles, but recently something had taken place that was bigger than anyone could have possibly imagined. You see, there was this friend of Jesus, a guy named Lazarus, who had died, and and he had been dead for four days. They, They buried him. They put him in a tomb, and he was there in this tomb, dead and rotting for four days. And then Jesus came and raised him from the dead. This had people really wondering, like, who is this guy? What is up with him? Is, is this the promised Messiah? Is this is this the deliverer of Israel? And so this crowd then uh, gets around Jesus, and they begin to form around him, and they and, and and then they start to sort of honor him as the messianic king. They they begin laying out their garments and and palm branches in front of Jesus's donkey as he rides into the city. This is something that Israel did when it was delivered from the Seleucids under the Maccabean revolt. Now, historically, this event took place in what theologians call the intertestamental period. That's just a fancy way of of saying the the time gap between when the last of the Old Testament prophets wrote and, and the arrival of John the Baptist and the arrival of Jesus in the New Testament. So in that time gap, there was this rebellion that took place led by the Maccabean family. And uh, this event is recorded in various historical accounts. There's, they're not considered scripture uh, by Protestant churches. However, these books are often very helpful historical references. They, they, they tell us like events that took place during this time period. So one of those is, is a book called First Maccabees. And First Maccabees uh, says in, in chapter 13, verse 51... Simon entered Jerusalem with a chorus of praise and the waving of palm branches. F.F. F. Bruce points out and uh, some parallels in his commentary where he, he says this, From the time of the Maccabees, palms or palm branches have been used as a national symbol. Palm branches figured in the procession, which celebrated the rededication of the temple in 164 BC. That was recorded also in 2 Maccabees. And again, the, the winning of full political independence was celebrated under Simon in 141 BC. Later, palms appeared as national symbols on the coins that were struck by Judean insurgents during the first and second revolts of Rome in AD sixty-six to 67. So as Jesus rides in, the people start shouting, and and, and they start shouting the words of Psalm 118, because in their minds, okay, just like the Maccabees delivered us from the Seleucids, so also this new Messiah, he's got a job to do. It's to deliver us from Rome. And so they begin quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, where they say, save, where it says in the Psalm, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That's what the psalm says. And so in in, verses, in verse 13, we, we, we read that they, they took the branches of palm trees and went out to, him, uh, out to meet him crying, Hosanna. The, the word save now in Hebrew is Hosanna. So earlier when we were singing songs with Mitch, we were singing Lord, save now, right? That's what we're crying out from, from our hearts. And that's what's happening on this day. They're saying, save us. And then they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they add a phrase at the very end. Notice what they say. Even the king of Israel. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Here the crowd is acknowledging Jesus as the promised messianic king. Of Israel. But but that leads us to this question What did the idea of Messiah mean to first century inhabitants of Jerusalem and of Israel? What's going on there? Well, the the historical context from Jesus' life is, is one of dominating world powers. Israel at this current moment. in in, in our story here, in the the biblical timeline, is under the authority of Rome. It's under Rome's empire. And all that the people of Israel wanted and longed for was autonomy. They, They just wanted freedom. However, even Jerusalem bore the markings of their submission to the power of Rome. From the perspective of the Israelites, Rome was this invading and occupying force. They were foreigners who were exerting authority and control over a sovereign nation, Israel. So from their perspective, Rome is invading. It's occupying. For them, their national identity was not Roman. They obtained their sense of national identity from the story of God's forming them as a nation. It was his calling of Abraham. It was his calling of Isaac. It was his calling of Jacob. It was the incredible deliverance that God won for them through Moses. Their identity as a nation was obtained in their relation to God. And, and, and throughout history, what they learned is either, either we are blessed because we are obeying God, or we are in a place of decline because we are rebelling against God. And so, in some ways, they, they looked at the, the occupation of Rome, at one, as, as something to be overcome. But two, they were longing for a time where God would restore them as a nation, where he would once again be their ruler, and they were under his favor. And in the days when Jesus walked, the presence of Rome meant that Israel was no longer obligated solely to God. They were obligated to Caesar as well. And Rome's occupation of Palestine was largely viewed as oppression. Now, we have some other historical sources that kind of tell us that that this is a recurring problem for Israel, because they they so wanted deliverance from Rome, they they so wanted out of this situation, that just about anybody who came on the scene claiming some sort of political power, the people would buy in, and there were multiple messianic revolutions by quasi-messianic figures, in the words of N.T. Wright. And the Romans frequently squelched these rebellions with with crucifixion. Violent messianic revolt grounded in the belief that God would intervene and bring about the messianic kingdom if the Jews would dare to rebel was clearly a part of Jewish life in this period. And messianic hopes were constantly being heralded by the prophets. The idea of a descendant of David becoming the king who would would deliver the people like like, like Moses did, lead them out of their captivity. Or, Or who would speak to them like one of the prophets, who would who would teach them the wisdom of God, like the prophets did. One who would who would have great military power like Joshua who would be like this conquering general, this, this genius leader who would lead them into military victory. He would cast off the authority of Caesar and the oppressive rule of Rome like the Maccabeans. This, this Messiah would bring peace and prosperity like Solomon and Israel would once again be their own autonomous nation under God see, for the Hebrews of Jesus' day, the Messiah was synonymous with liberty from Rome, with peace and prosperity, and with a king who would vanquish all their enemies. And Jesus kind of seems to fit the bill. I mean, when they look at Jesus, they're, you know, they're, they're trying to say, like, who, who is the Messiah? And Jesus is doing some incredible things. I mean, first of all, he meets the genetic markers because he's of the, the, the line, the genetic line of the house of David, and they know that the Messiah is to come from the house of David. They know that this is true, and he, he hits that mark. And, and then Jesus also speaks and teaches as one who has authority. He speaks like a prophet, and he's doing these miraculous signs. There's all kinds of amazing things that are happening around Jesus, The sick are being healed, the lame are walking, the blind see, the lepers are cleansed, demon possessed people are being freed from their oppression, the poor are being cared about and loved. Jesus turns water into wine and he multiplies bread and fish in such a way as to feed a multitude, a whole kingdom of people. And Jesus has even recently raised the dead. Now this could have provoked in their minds some prophetic injury from the book of Ezekiel. Perhaps you will remember from the book of Ezekiel how how Ezekiel is given this vision of Israel as this valley with all these dead bones lying in it. And then God calls Ezekiel to, to speak, to preach, and all of a sudden the, the flesh begins to form, sinew forms over the bones, and, and, and this valley of dry bones is raised up as a mighty army. And they're like, Jesus has resurrection power? It's here. Like, this is the moment. This is, this is the messianic king. He I'm mean, what? power can come against an an army that can raise its people from the dead? What power can do that? What power can defeat that? The only thing left then for Jesus to do in the minds of these people is to demonstrate his military power and prowess. All he has to do then is mobilize the people to rebel against Rome and take on the task of liberating God's people from foreign rule. That's all he's got to do. And here, in this moment, the people are in in agreement that this is is what they want. This is what they've been longing for. This is it. They're ready for him to take on Rome. They're ready for him to storm the capital of Israel and deliver Israel from the tyrannical rule of Rome. (laughs) Look at what they call Jesus. Verse 13. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. You guys, these are the words of people about to stage a coup of Caesar. These are the words that ultimately provoke the Pharisees who were standing by to action in confronting Jesus. Things are, are coming to a head in the life of Jesus. But, but notice what Jesus has been doing all along. Jesus fundamentally reinterpreted his people's hope for a messianic kingdom. And nowhere is this more clear than Jesus' rejection of violent revolutionaries and their call to take up arms against the Romans. These revolutionaries who opposed paying Roman taxes would would certainly have denounced the Roman law that made it legal for a Roman soldier to demand that a person in a conquered territory must carry his bags for a mile. Instead of urging rebellion against that law, Jesus says, no, serve these guys, carry it two miles. Go the extra mile." Jesus urged his people to love their enemies instead of urging the slaughter of godless conquerors. And among Jesus' disciples was an anti-government religious zealot a guy who is a conspiracy theorist of the greatest degree, looking at the rule of Rome and saying, how can we, how can we overthrow this? And, and he's one of Jesus's twelve disciples, one of the, the followers of Jesus. And also, along with that, is a tax collector. A guy who is, who is not only in favor, but he's a government employee to Rome. He's, he's Rome's IRS agent. <laughs> And they're on the same team following the same Jesus. And Jesus has done this on purpose. Jesus has people from the far left and the far right on his team of disciples. And everyone is learning about a new way to live under a new kingdom with a new king. And this is what leads us to the significance of John's quote from the book of Zechariah regarding the Messiah's mount. In verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on not just a donkey, but on the colt of a donkey, a donkey's baby, right? It's significant due to what we just discussed regarding Israel's expectation of what a Messiah actually was. John describes Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem riding on a donkey rather than a war horse. This is a powerful indication of Jesus' rejection of violent messianic strategies. And immediately after this account, Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus finds himself on a hillside overlooking the city of Jerusalem and begins weeping. Why? Because he foresaw the rejection of him as the Messiah and the calls for violent revolution that they would ultimately lead to the city's destruction. And he prophesies in that moment that they're going to be destroyed. This is a prophecy that actually came true in AD as the city was sacked By Rome, and not one stone on the Temple Mount stood upon another. Sadly, Jesus says over the city of Jerusalem, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. Luke 19 42. Jesus comes riding in on this donkey as a demonstration that he's not there for a hostile takeover. (laughs) John tells us that in that moment, the disciples didn't see the significance of this event. It wasn't until further reflection after the resurrection that all of this took on new significance. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So John tells us that in the moment the disciples didn't see the significance of these events, but afterwards they realized what Jesus was doing all along, what his purpose was. Now, the synoptics, again, the synoptics being Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are the three Gospels that are similar in their composition. They're they're, they're very uh, similar in the way that they're put together. They record for us other details that John does not give. They tell us that Jesus had made the arrangements purposefully to fulfill Zechariah 9.9. Jesus is making a statement that the disciples didn't really fully discern until after the resurrection. Jesus accomplishes a deliberate fulfillment of this prophecy from Zechariah. And it's a demonstration of the character of his kingdom. It was, it was a spiritual kingdom, not a military kingdom. He came in peace, not in war. And this shows that the crowd, in shouting, Save now! had in mind a political salvation from the oppression of the Romans. They think Jesus is here to fight. And when when these people thought uh, the, the Messiah, excuse me, when these people thought Messiah, they only thought of political and military power. The only enemy that they could really wrap their minds around, the only enemy that they thought that they really needed saving from was Rome. What they they needed was national deliverance. What they needed was political deliverance. That's what they thought that they needed. And life would be good. We would be better. The world would be right if only our government was fixed. Can you empathize? The idea of being saved from their sins and the judgment of God never even occurred to them. They wanted a leader who would storm the capital, kick the evil politicians and world powers out, and set up Israel as one nation under God. Now that Jesus has shown that he can raise the dead, what military power can deal with that? Now notice in verses 17 and 18, the crowd took the, the raising of Lazarus as a sign of his messianic authority. But what they don't understand is that in his first appearance, in the first advent, the first arrival of Jesus, Jesus is not the conquering king. He is the prince of peace. He does not come as the lion of the tribe of Judah yet. Rather, he comes as the Passover lamb to give his life and spare his people the wrath of God. He does not come to trod down the winepress of his wrath. Instead, he comes to give the world a foretaste of what it would be like to live under his rule. Blind eyes being opened, and lame walking, the dead being raised. He's like, this is what my kingdom looks like. He keeps saying it over and over and over again. This is what my kingdom looks like. This is what's coming. This is what's going to happen. You're getting a taste of it even now. Jesus is unconcerned only with one nation. It has always been in the heart of God to gather all the nations, every tribe, every tongue or language, every ethnic identity into one kingdom under his gracious rule. This this is a part of what makes the gospel so good. Jesus is making a kingdom, not just from one national identity, people who are ethnically from Israel, but from the world, he's gathering all people under his name. It's a whole new kind of kingdom. It's a whole new kind of nation. And this is what ultimately leads us to the crisis that's described in verse 19 where we see the Messiah's mutiny. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Can you you hear their frustration? like, look, we've, we've done everything we can to argue with this guy and make life difficult for him, and none of it's working. The whole world is going after him. Look, they're laying their garments down. They're, they're putting down palm trees. They, they, they think that this is the moment that we should all revolt. They see and feel the inevitable loss of power and the influence over the people of Israel. This moment on the road to Jerusalem brings Jesus into conflict on both sides of the political aisle of his day. and Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. He's, he's more than happy to upside, upset both the left and the right, for his kingdom is not of this world. And since it's not of this world, it is not likely to align with either political side very well. There's no platform in the world that can contain the kind of kingdom that Jesus wants to build. Both the the ruling class of the Pharisees and the common people that are throwing down the palm branches, they they are nationalists. They both care about their, their kingdom, their own kingdom, more than the kingdom that Jesus has been proclaiming. That's what they care. They're like, our national identity matters more than the kingdom you're building. That's what really matters. So we want you to apply your authority to our ideals. The Pharisees hate Jesus because he threatens their hold on political and religious power. The crowds who now cheer for Jesus will be crying, crucify him in a week. They will say, we will not have this man rule over us. In a week's time. That's how fast public opinion changes. On the one hand, if he is not a conquering military general but a donkey-riding peaceful king, then the people laying down palm branches are about to be sorely disappointed. And if he is the conquering king that the crowd wants him to be, then the Pharisees see conflict between Israel and Rome as imminent, and they're going to have to do something to stop it because they'll they'll get swept up in Rome's response. So, what should Jesus do? I mean, well, what should he do? How is he going to please both sides of the aisle? How will he make them happy? How will he sway public opinion to to still maintain his popularity? <laughs> Answer: He's concerned with none of that. That is the masses' responsibility. How they respond to the authority of Jesus, that responsibility falls on them. Jesus is utterly concerned with maintaining popularity. His job is to do his Father's will and live for the kingdom his Father has given him. His job was never to please the crowds. It was always to save them. He's not the Messiah they want. He's the Messiah that they need. So we're going to take a look at these last few verses. I'm going to run through this fairly quickly, but I want you to hear sort of the overflow, the the overarching reasoning of Jesus. What is his message? What kind of kingdom is he building? What has he come here to do? So in this last point here, the Messiah's message, there are three categories that I want us to put our our, our thoughts in here. Three things. Verses 23 through 26. First of all, my hour has come to bring life from death. And then in verses 27 to 30, my soul is troubled, but my father is pleased. In verses 31 to 33, my enemy is defeated and my death will save. What if we take just a moment to let Jesus tell us what everyone in this passage seems to be missing? What if we just let Jesus define what his kingdom looks like? Why it is that his father has sent him? The next few verses we're going to see that Jesus, what Jesus has in mind for his kingdom. It is a kingdom that has forever in view. Not just the temporary kingdoms of this earth. It is a kingdom that he and his father have been longing to build from the moment they spoke the world into existence. This is the kingdom they've been thinking about and preparing since before they reached their hands collaboratively into the dust of the earth and formed man out of the dust of the ground and shared their life with mankind. That's the kingdom that Jesus is building. It transcends all ethnic identities. It transcends all nationalities. It transcends every government that has ever been. It was before them and it will be there long after them. It is the kingdom eternal. Now, we're we're told in the text that some Greeks come seeking Jesus saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The disciples run it up the chain. They, they say, well, let me go talk to so-and-so. And so, you know, Philip takes off and he goes uh, and, and, and tells Andrew. And Andrew takes off and he goes and tells Jesus. And then Jesus responds by telling them what will need to happen to him. And so, verses 23 through 26, he says, My hour has come to bring life from death. Verse 23 Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Here's here's what he's saying. He says, this is the hour that I've been waiting for my whole life. The the God who sits above time and created the heavenly lights the stars in the heavens and the the sun and the moon and established the times and the seasons has created time itself to lead to this specific moment right here, the redemption of the world. Jesus says, my hour, the one I've been waiting for, is here. This is the hour that wasn't here in John chapter 2 when when he goes to, or when his mom says, hey, I, I want you to, you know, there's too many rednecks at this wedding and they drank all the wine and all the wine is now gone and so Jesus, do something about it. Jesus is like, hey, it's not my hour yet. And his mom says, hey, just do whatever he says. <laughs> so he turns water into wine. He says, it, it's not not my hour. But now he says, it is my hour now. And he goes on to say that that those who those who understand this that, that when he is laid down into the dirt and he dies he he's actually going to bring forth fruit. It, it's like a, a kernel of wheat that is planted in the ground, just one little tiny grain. But up from that one kernel comes a a, a clump of wheat, and and there's a hundred seeds now as a result of the one seed. He says, that's exactly what's going to happen. My death, right now, I'm going to be planted in the ground, and from my death will come life to many. And anybody who who loves his life in this world has to lose it. It's not about your kingdom, not about your nation, not about your, your political agenda. It's about my kingdom, my nation, my agenda, my heart for the nations. Members of the kingdom will be those who imitate and follow him. They will value the eternal kingdom over any temporary kingdom. Then number two, he says, my soul is troubled, but my father is pleased. Beginning in verse 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then God the Father responds audibly. This is one of the few occasions where God the Father speaks audibly and humans hear it, but they, they don't know what to do with it. <laughs> it happened at his baptism. It happened again at the Mount of Transfiguration, and it happens here in response to Jesus telling his Father, my soul is troubled, but God, do whatever you want with me. Father, do what you want with me. Glorify your name through my life. Do what you, can, what you sent me here to do. Bring glory to your name. And his father responds audibly. But not just for fellowship with Jesus. He could have spoken that into Jesus' heart. He, he speaks audibly for the benefit of the people around him. He says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. That's what we came to do. That's what's going on here. The redemption of the world. He's affirming his sovereignty over all that will unfold in the, in the coming week. During Passover, God is glorifying his name by redeeming man and building a kingdom that he had planned before sin even entered into the world. And then lastly, Jesus says, my enemy is defeated, my death will save. Beginning in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out and I when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself and he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die Jesus's death will signal the defeat of his enemy the enemy who brought death into the world will now be beaten through death that's what's going to happen Jesus' death, in turn, would bring life to all who who enter his kingdom by faith. And, And coming under the rule of King Jesus changes everything in life. The moral stances that Jesus took throughout his life demonstrate that the kingdom of Jesus is a different animal altogether. And if we're to follow him, he will challenge our cultural values. If we're to follow him, he will challenge our national identity at times. It's okay to be proud of the place that you come from. It is fine to want the city and the country that you live in to prosper and to be righteous and to to be holy. It is fine to long for those things. Absolutely. But the kingdom you belong to will outlive any kingdom you're born into. Jesus challenges us to not align ourselves with any particular party. He says, on the one hand, he's pro life. On the other hand, he cares for the poor. Jesus is for globalism. He wants to take over the world. He's for open borders and a one world government, just not run by men. (laughs) He's not for democracy. He wants to establish a kingdom with him as the king. It's a monarchy. His kingdom will one day fill up the earth and people will no longer make war. They will beat their weapons into farming instruments and there will be one throne with one king whose righteous rule never ends forever and ever. Why did the crowds miss this? Because they were more concerned about their national identity. Jesus has a desire to reach and save all tribes, all people, all tongues, all nations. And if we're going to follow him, we need to see the Messiah for who he is. Not a moral thought leader. Not a political tool to be wielded. We cannot mistake the kingdom of Christ for our own kingdom. They're not the same. They wanted to worship Jesus for what he would give, not for who he is, but friends and followers of Jesus we love and follow Jesus for who he is not for what he gives amen this next week Mitch you can bring your team up to close us with one song this next week we're going to have baptisms here i i, I don't know if you are aware of the the significance of proselyte baptism in the Old Testament. But here's, here's kind of a, a brief synopsis of what would happen. If a person was not born under God's covenant community and they, they, they found that Yahweh was the true God and they wanted to become an Israelite, but they were not Israelite by birth. They had this process where they would take and they would shave their entire bodies, shave all their hair off, shave off their eyebrows, shave all the hair off their entire bodies. And... They would come down to a public place to these mikvahs, these, these baptismals, right? And, and they would enter into one side and they would dunk themselves under the water and then they would leave and exit the other side of the baptismal. Here's what was happening. It was a symbol. It was a, like a sign, right? That, that What you were doing, you're saying, I used to have this, this identity, but I made myself like a baby. I, I shaved off all my hair. And now I look like an infant. And I go down into the baptismal and it's like I'm re-entering the womb, if you will. And I'm being born again. I come out the other side of the baptismal and I'm now, I was not a part of God's covenant community. Now I am a part of God's covenant community. I'm now a part of a new kingdom, a new nation. And this next Sunday, as we gather... That's what we're going to see again and again. People who have encountered Jesus. Children who've encountered Jesus. Adults who've encountered Jesus who said, I sign up for this thing. I'm abandoning every other identity. My only identity is in Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And I will follow him and obey his rule and live under his authority. That's what it means to follow Jesus. The crowds missed it. Friends and family. I pray that we don't. Amen? Father, have your way as we celebrate with one final song of worship. God, would you unite our hearts with yours, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the sovereign over the whole earth. We ask this in the name of Jesus.